This is Swampside Chats. A podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to talk about the communist hypothesis, both the essay and the book, by Elaine Badu. stuff like when i encountered a lot of this stuff originally around uh around occupy one thing that kind of interested me about Badu was this kind of like idea of like the ontology of the event where i don't know i can't i don't claim to totally understand it because i haven't really gone deep into like some of his tomier tomes but he has this idea that there are like these certain like ruptures like in the continuity of thought or like civilization that will like redefine everything that with like that was or the way to redefine our understanding of what things were before and then change what comes afterwards, right? So like the Enlightenment or the Cultural Revolution or May '68, all sort of events. Uh, but maybe we're getting like too deep into this. Um, this week we're talking about uh, the Communist Hypothesis, uh, which is both an article that was originally published in the New Left Review in January, February 2008, and also a book uh, that does not contain said article but has a lot of similar themes in a series of like different articles. I think we're reading this because at least as of this recording, I don't know when the episode's gonna be out, but it's still like May, uh, 50 years after May 68. And Badu has some interesting thoughts on that, partially in relation to the thing I just mentioned where he sort of sees May 68 as like this rupture in French politics. And in many ways it, it is, uh, because it's something that, you know, people as far as Sarkozy and even Macron now still talk about it um, as, a, an element in the orientation of the French political order. So, uh, yeah, well, Badu, he takes, um, May 68, um, the proletarian cultural revolution and then the Paris commune. Yeah. He, like the, the, the broader book covers those like three main things. Um, but first let's talk about the article a little bit because it's, it was published like shortly after, um, the vic- victory of Nicholas Sarkozy and you can sort of see him like trying to make sense of that. And he also, there's another book he has called like a, another short little pamphlet called like the meaning of Sarkozy. And he, he develops this idea that I think is kind of a, like one thing that Badu is pretty good at is like naming things. Like he has a really good, like takedown of, um, of, uh, daily use called the fascism of the potato just like shitting on the idea of the rhizome um, yeah it, it it's Deleuze, not gay lose it's Deleuze. i thought it was daily use okay i daily, never know how to, i never I, know I how mean, to, i, I could know. be utterly wrong but i i, I think it's Deleuze. i've always heard it as Deleuze, but i never know how to pronounce this french shit i never yeah frog names are hard yeah. frog names are hard Anyway, but he he basically describes like Sarkozy as the outcome of what he calls like uh, transcendental Patainism or neo-Patainism. Yeah, Patain was the leader of Vichy, like France, right? Yeah, you know, the Nazis, like fascist France, basically. Right. So I mean, like I guess to put it in like modern, like stupid discourse, you could basically say like Patain was cucked by the Germans, 
and like Sarkozy is basically cucked by global capital. And it's this, this idea that like basically France just kind of like needs to like capitulate. It, it's actually kind of a weirdly nationalist idea because, and you can see it like how it how it like um, connects to like the resistance like based like ideology of like the French left, where it's like you know like we have to protect France against like th this outside force or whatever that's like ruining like the greatness of our. Yeah. Well, I mean, my understanding is that Badu is critiquing that line of thought, though, right? Yeah, he, he is as well. He is as well. But it is. But the I'm just saying, like the the, the he does that as well. But I'm, what I'm saying is, like the term neopatanism kind of it kind of smears it in that way. You know okay. What I'm yeah. Um. But I, I do think I do think it's like a good smear, though, because he is right. Like there is this kind of, and it goes back to the commune too, which will come up later. You know, where basically you know foreign forces have to come in to basically put certain factors of French society back into power. So that's kind of what he gets into first. He also talks about like his thoughts on electoralism, which are kind of weird. Well, on a lot of the book, he kind of comes off almost as an anarchist. Like he keeps on talking about how really the problem is the logic of the party state and the, the idea, he kind of actually defines Stalinism in a, in a negative way as the idea that politics is within the realm of the party state. And he sees a great cultural, the great, you know, cultural revolution or whatever, May 68, as kind of like instances where politics escapes the dominion of the party state. And this allows for basically a move towards communism by moving away from the statist principle. Yeah. Well, he describes the, the, when he, how he basically breaks it down is like he argues there's like two sequences of like the communist what he calls the communist hypothesis, where the first sequence uh, basically runs from the the French Revolution to the Paris Commune. So he says like 1792 to 1871, um, basically the bourgeois revolutions, and then the second sequence is runs he argues runs from 1917 to 1976, and each of them poses like a different set of questions, right? So you have like he basically he says like uh, the first sequence links the popular mass movement to the seizure of power through the insurrectional overthrow of the existing order. This revolution will abolish the old forms of society to in and install the, quote, community of equals. Um, and then the sequence accumulated in the striking novelty and radical defeat of the Paris Commune. For the, for the Commune demonstrated both the extraordinary energy of this combination of popular movement, working class leadership, and armed insurrection, and its limits. The Commune, the commune arts could neither establish the revolution on a national footing, nor could it defend it against foreign back forces of counter-revolution. He talks about the second sequence, um, which is basically uh, structured around the contradictions of the party state and how the party effectively solved the question inherited from the first sequence, the revolution prevailed either through insurrection or prolonged popular war uh, and succeeded in establishing a new order, but it posed its own set of problems that it never really failed. It never really managed to actually bring about like the withering away of the state or oh, defeat yeah. Or this defeat, is all making sense to me now. <laughs> yeah, or defeat capitalism on a global stage. So basically, what he's—I mean, let me just re, kind of rephrase this because I, you know, have a lot of trouble understanding Madu, except in kind of like his editorials, which often are very good takes. Like, um, I remember his editorial on Charlie Hebdo was actually very good and one of the only like non-idiotic takes that the left had about it. <laughs> yeah. But um. Yeah, so basically he's saying that the, the, the French Revolution to the Paris Commune is basically like the, the, the question of how do we change society? And the answer is, well, we have to take political power and the Paris Commune is kind of a demonstration of that. But the Commune fails, 
because he cites the lack of he says that like has you know citing Lenin saying it the lack of ideological cohesion and a scientific understanding of capital because basically it was just a bunch of neo Jacobins, Blancists, and Proudhonists, and there was wasn't really a Marxist like you know ideology involved in the Paris Commune at all, and its inability to defend itself, and so. Then the next phase, which is um, 1917 to the Cultural Revolution, is basically we figure out how to take power now, but we don't know how to actually use that political power to bring in communism and the emancipation of humanity and the withering of the state. And so now we're kind of at a new phase. And I mean, that's... And so I, I'm just wondering, what exactly are the implications then for politics today, I guess? Well, I think what, he's, what he argues then is that we're basically at an interlude. Um, uh, he actually he, so he basically says, okay, uh, we need to reinstall the communist hypothesis, the proposition that the subordination of labor to the dominant class is not inevitable within the ideological sphere. What might this involve? Experimentally, we might conceive of a finding a point that we could outside of the temporality of the dominant order and what Lacan once called the service of wealth um, at any point, so long as, as it is in formal opposition to such service and offers the discipline of universal truth. One might be, and here's, and this is kind of like the problem, like he basically, he doesn't know, like he, he doesn't know what the answer is, but he knows that we don't, but he knows that we don't know. And so what he's basically saying is like this is a period essentially to rethink, and he offers he's offered at different points like um, different like perspective ideas on what it might be like. Even right here, he argues like maybe just a commitment to the basic idea of internationalism and that there is quote only one world. Um, I mean, or that would definitely be an an improvement. <laughs> yeah, or he talks about. Um, like the here he has this idea. He, I know he's toyed with this idea of like subtraction from the state. And like people basically just like uh, disentang like disentangling themselves from their relationship to the state, what I, which he always that, frames in like very like idealistic kind of vague terms. Yeah, that just sounds like basically like autonomous Marxism or anarchism, to be honest, with like a Maoist gloss. <laughs> well, and the, kind of the problem is like the okay we okay so guys one one such thing might be the declaration there is only one world. What would this imply? Contemporary capitalism boasts, of course, that it has created a global order. Its opponents, too, speak of alter globalization. Essentially, they propose a definition of politics as a practical means of moving from the world as it is to the world as we would wish it to be. But does a single world of human subjects exist? He points out that one world is solely like objects for sale. It's basically the world market that Marx predicted. And so I guess what he's basically saying is like, supposing like, you know, the division into rich and poor and uh, north and south in terms of global capital and all that stuff but the only problem with this is it's kind of like and he, he basically he points this out like um there is kind of like there this is kind of like a performative unity as he puts it but you know what what marxism has to offer is it basically points out that there's contradictions within that unity that could potentially resolve themselves by you know the proletariat basically organizing itself but how you get from here to there he doesn't really seem to have any idea um yeah, so let's see. He kind of closes like the, the article. And actually, actually, we should go back really quick because he does actually inter uh, introduce like a pretty interesting definition of, of what the communist hypothesis is. And he basically states, um, what is the communist hypothesis? 
as general sense given in the canonic manifesto, communist means first that the logic of class, the fundamental subordination of labor to a dominant class, the arrangement that has persisted since antiquity is not inevitable. It can be overcome. The communist hypothesis is that a different collective organization is pr practicable, one that will eliminate the inequality of wealth and even the division of labor. So he he frames that as a hypothesis. In other words, not something that you can actually uh, prove is the case. And he argues that it sort of existed kind of almost as a historical transcendental in that, you know, you have like a, it, it's basically the, the germ of the idea can be found in any like major mass action. Um, for instance, like the slaves, sites like the slaves led by Spartacus, the peasants led by Munster, um, and even, um, you know, within the elements of the French Revolution. I mean, I think that I kind of think there is, some, I mean, part of the thing is like what one of the, because like the novelty of what Marx argues is that like capitalist society creates the conditions by which the kind of universalized emancipation is materially possible. But I think he is right in terms of this idea of there being a restoration of a kind of um, egalitarian social balance has motivated a, pretty much pretty much most or it's motivated like the best popular movements like in human history. Um, and, you know, I'm, like, you know, you can even see elements of like in early Christianity before it sort of became like reintegrated into like the Roman state or whatever. And yeah, so it's in a sense it's true, but I think like the materialist, he's he, like Badu's analysis is often very idealistic, and like the materialist art like component of Marxism argues that it's that it is actually now um, truly physically truly possible to do in a way that it wasn't before. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, Carl. This idea is not particularly original. I mean, you can find it in like Karl Kotsky, like he traces like communism back to Plato for reasons that honestly, like from what I remember reading about it, yeah, it's more like planning of society. That's how he defines like early communism, I guess, early conceptions of communism and socialism. I mean, I would argue something more along the lines of Badu that like there was sort of like a communist gene of like class struggle and a general desire for a more egalitarian society and like forms of class struggle that have existed throughout history. Like, for example, uh, when you read like the Federalist Papers, like they, they have like all the like John Quincy Adams, uh, fucking um, Alexander Hamilton, all the people who are like contribute to that. Uh, contribute to like the Federalist Papers. They all have like a hostility towards towards like democracy as a concept because they relate it back to like this majoritarian rule and specifically the majoritarian ability for them to like take away their wealth and their power. It's specifically like fifty one percent of the population screwing over screwing over um, the like. No, not fifty-one percent. I'm sorry. I'm just. Well, yeah, it's um, it's they... definitely idealistic, but maybe it's an intelligent idealism because, as Lenin said, like intelligent idealism is better than vulgar materialism. So there might be something to take from this, that just this general ideal of human equality 
and the unified human community is kind of what is missing from Marxist discourse and what can re-energize Marxist discourse to, you know, create a radical imagination that essentially, essentially you need some kind of vision of a just world, I guess. And I think in history, this desire to have a just world has played out in various ways, but it wasn't able to universalize. But this kind of the fact that capitalism has universalized itself now means a, a proletariat exists, which can universalize itself as a human community, if that makes sense. And but he's he kind of uh, looks down on the idea of focusing too much on political economy because he thinks that this idea of like the crisis and the collapse of capitalism kind of placates the revolutionary struggle and makes it like wait until the right moment and also kind of rely on economic development as a way towards social equality rather than a like leveling of social relations, which is kind of Althusserian and Maoist point, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And he is an Althusserian Maoist basically. So Yeah. Uh yeah, it seems like a sort of recycling of criticism that was leveled at like the or or what is labeled as orthodox Marxism. Like Karl Kotsky, um, uh, August Bebel. Yeah, Bebel. well, he's definitely yeah. He like Althusser called um, Althusser was a Stalinist, but he was critical of Stalinism because he said it was the revenge of the Second International because Stalin's relentless basically his critique of Stalin was that. Uh, and Mao shared a similar critique was that Matt, Stalin focused too much on developing the forces of production and not enough on changing the relations of production. And this is because there's a theoretical error in orthodox Marxism that the forces of production are more important than the relations of production. And Althusser says, no, really, what matters is the relations of production. The forces of production don't really matter that much. In fact, they don't matter to the point where you could have communism in China if you have a cultural revolution. Yeah. And it, that's it, kind of what a lot of Maoism comes from. Yeah, it it kind of like becomes cruder each round of like criticism against like the second and international style Marxism, like supposed style of like second international Marxism. Like you kind of see it in like Lukács a bit, like you see it in like his criticism of like, uh, well, he aims it more at like Bernstein and against like empiricism the limits of like empiricism and that sort of thing. And it's also directed at Karl Kotsky, but the brunt of it is like, from what I remember reading class consciousness and history, the brunt of it is aimed at Bernstein, but it's a general critique of like the empiricism that I, the empiricism that like Marxism can like be debunked because like, we're not going through crisis and it re points back to Marxism being a dialectical method. And in that way, like Lukács and like the general thrust of that, like criticism. The dialectical like, school, basically. Yeah. It's like, it's like a move away. It's like a move towards like class struggle being emphasized rather than capitalist crisis. Yeah. Like, well, and like, like what I noticed is, like Luke Hosh's and Karl Korsh's 
and that kind of the dialectical Hegelian Marxists develop as a reaction to the Second International, which they believe was overly positivistic and didn't understand dialectics, which I actually find to be a very like poor reading of the Second International, because I've actually read a lot of Second International literature, and it's actually very impressive how nuanced and you know rigorous a lot of the Marxism is in those publications. But there's this idea that the reason the Second International collapsed is because they didn't have a dynamic enough dialectical enough understanding of Marxism to emphasize the subjective factor. And Lenin was able to kind of save the second, um, save communism from the, the treachery of Second International by recognizing that subjective factor and what Gramsci called a, a revolt against Das Kapital by seizing power in October 1917. And I think this is a massive misreading of a lot of stuff, but it leads to the the Hegelian dialectical Marxists who say that we need to like have more dialectics. But then you have after World War II, the structuralist Marxist school develops in opposition to this dialectical school of Marxists that they they call it humanist and deride it as humanistic. And their problem is that they don't fully break from Hegel enough. And with the structuralist Marxists, there is this attempt to make Marxism more scientific. But they don't they try to still keep it from, you know, the legacy of the Second International, because obviously, as Althusser said, like the Second International is just economism and, you know, we need to completely move beyond that. But and I see Badu as kind of continuing in that trajectory, I guess, of structuralist Marxism. But yeah. he but he's not. But the thing is, structuralist Marxism is almost kind of mechanical, whereas Badu is more fluid, if that makes sense. From what I can gather, yeah, that that's why I was like relating it to the initial criticism that was like leveled by Lukács and like the more like uh, humanistic Marxists of the early uh, of the early twentieth uh, century, because it it feels like something that would be against like a mechanical interpretation of Marxism, like with all, the Althusserians, I I guess, and yeah, like. Like, like, um, uh, Badu is basically coming out of that Melu of like Mao of like Altazarian, Altazarians and like Maoists. He could be described as like a post Maoist and post Altazarian. Yeah, definitely a post Maoist <laughs> because he loves Mao, and it's clear from the chapter on the Cultural Revolution that he has a high regard for Mao. But I think that his he kind of gets the history wrong on the Cultural Revolution and lets his appreciation of Mao basically do that. And so, yeah, I do think that there is kind of this, I hate to say it, but this anarcho-Maoist-like thing going on here where we need to stop worrying about political economy because that leads us to this passivity. And instead, we need to focus on the idea of communism. And so it's almost like a Sorelian myth, I think, as you were saying earlier, Rosa. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, basically, I was comparing it to, like, Sorelian myth as, like, something that's not really, like, structured. Like, communism itself is more like a vague idea of, like, a more egalitarian society, and it's not really all that fleshed out. But it's supposed to, like, structure, like, n the way people relate to each other. 
because he uh, from what I can tell from like secondary lit and like interviews that I've had like I used to be into Slavoj Žižek so he would often talk about Badu and I I like watched that interview that he did he, he he does like believe in some kind of like ethics from what I can tell yeah but at the same time yeah like communism is like supposed to be an ideal that structures like like ethics and like all these things and like motivates like motivates people to action like I'm honestly sure. though like i kind of i actually got the feeling that this was almost like a communist self-help book i'm not joking because there was a lot of stuff in it that just kind of like made me like be like yeah communism is possible we we can do it you know like this <laughs> you know the the neo-libs may have won the 20th century but you know we learned you know, the lessons and we can reapply our knowledge in the 21st century and communism isn't like, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's like, and, but I was going to say, it's also like, I think Marxism does kind of lack an ethics in a way. And I think that's maybe not a horrible thing. And I think maybe this kind of thinking could be a component of Marxism as long as it doesn't get too far away from materialism. But I'm still undecided on that. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely, like, written in a way that's supposed to be kind of rousing and this kind of idea of, you know, and I mean, I think it's sometimes it's very easy to forget just how badly, like, the left was defeated the 20th century, you know, and just how how much we're kind of, like, living in, like, the midst of, like, that defeat. Um, yeah. And so this is kind of meant to be the, this idea, like, okay, well, this thing was obliterated, but it was it, it's been obliterated before, and, you know, it's this. It, there is this kind of like thing that's he basically by connecting it to like this broader history. Through you know, he, he argues that this thing is as an idea, it can't be completely ever destroyed and could find a way to manifest itself again. Yeah, kind of like communism lives on as like a specter throughout history. Well, and I think because there will always be people fighting for a more just world because they are oppressed, that there is some truth to that. There's an invariant quality to communism but i don't think that it exists in people's hearts and souls and that simply needs to be realized through the you know breakdown of the state which isn't really what badu is saying he is saying there i mean i guess i'm confused about his views on the party state because he seems to think that it was like necessary but now it's no longer necessary but something new is going to replace it but we don't we can't know what's going to replace it but it just seems obvious to me that communism is still a political project and that means that you have to work with political parties and programs you know yeah yeah i, I, I know think they're still going to have to take state power i think that's what slavoj zizek tried to emphasize in like response to badu from what i remember but then again his politics were still shit because he was like uh, uh sarsia Syriza hack Syriza cheerleader yeah and he's you don't support Syriza, go to gulag yeah yeah he's... so there's this, there's a section like um the idea of communism where he touches on this a little bit and this is where it kind of gets into his idea of like how communism is like this thing that like helps to like uh, form people's like subjectivity as political actors um so but he kind of uses like Lacanian, like a Kant's, like um, 
topology of like consciousness to um, basically break this down. And let me just read like this um, this section here real quick. Um, let's recapitulate as simply as possible. A truth is the political real. History, even as a reservoir of proper names, is a symbolic place. The ideological operation of the idea of communism is the imaginary projection of the political real into the symbolic fiction of history, including its in its guise as a representation of the action of innumerable masses via the one of a proper name. The role of this idea is to support the individual's incorporation into the discipline of a truth procedure, to authorize the individual in his or her own eyes, to go beyond the status constraints of mere survival by becoming a part of the body of truth or the subjectivizable body. Um, so I think I might that, be able to... That was a fucking bong rip thought. Yeah. <laughs> or, I'm, or I'm just... I, I remember... I'm just I remember... I understand that. <laughs> I remember being into Slavoj Zizek in like, high, in like early high school being like man i should really re read this lacan guy he keeps on mentioning and like uh like i remember like the four like it was something like four lectures or something like that that i tried to start off with thinking you know hey this might be this might be a good introduction no no it's not no it's not it's not a good introduction at all well jake is no actually understands lacan so maybe yeah. maybe he can unpack this shit yeah. well there's a, there, there's a few lacanian ideas that i've been able to grasp and one of them is kind of like the topo so like L lacan pictures like human like subjectivity is like three interlocking rings right <laughs> one is the imaginary the symbolic and the real so like the, the imaginary would be like your immediate ex this is how i understand it at least the imaginary would be like your immediate experience so like almost like the like if you could like record like your vision, like that would be like the imaginary, right? That's like your experiential reality, right? Mm -hmm. the, the symbolic belongs to the order of language, right? It's the way we like symbolize and come to understand the world, right? So it would be like our abstractions that we form in relation to our immediate sensuous experiences. Yes. And the, the real is everything that's outside those things. So like the real is that which has not been um, uh, sub subjectified or the not been symbol symbolized rather. So the real has like a fundamentally traumatic character, right? So when that's actually says, really interesting. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I, so he basically says the truth is the is the political real, right? So it's almost like the you know like the the trauma of history, right? History, even as a reservoir of proper names, is a symbolic space, right? So it's like the the symbolization of like that traumatic experience, right? So and it goes the ideological operation of the idea of communism is is the imaginary projection of the political real into the symbolic fiction of history, including in its guise as a representation of the action of innumerable masses via the one of a proper name. So, I, I think what he's basically saying is, it's okay. So you're basically reading back into history, sort of traumatic experience of like subjugation and exploitation that underpins the whole thing and then basically like pointing to different like revolts as like the continuity that underpins like historically so i guess like what he's saying is like class struggle and then this idea of class struggles being like the basis of history helps the individual to like enter into that basically i think that's what he's saying there does that make sense <laughs> Eh, kind of. I'm. Yeah. It's it's a lot to chew on, really. Yeah.
I just thought, I don't know, like that that's actually one thing like I could sort of um elu- I mean that's elucidate. Because, because he yeah, he it, there is something like weirdly ethical about it, but he's also kind of like trying to pan like I guess how communism functions like on the individual as an ideology. It's interesting anyway. Yeah, um, because yeah. there's a Badoo book called I actually decided to check out Badoo's book just called Ethics because I'm kind of interested in this idea of communist ethics now, because, I mean, if we kind of look at the history of Stalinism, you know, I think ethics might have been something useful, perhaps, <laughs> to have mm-hmm. kept in mind. <laughs> um, you know, we- because there's, you know, like, uh, just this idea that, like, because you're on the right side of history, anything you do can be justified you know, kind of is the communist ethic, according to some people. And I just don't want that to actually be the case because it's a little just... It's definitely the the Stalinist ethic. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, is that, like, you, like, the party is a manifestation of the will of the proletariat, and the proletariat is the subject of history. So anything the party does is justified because it's furthering the progress of history. And I think... Badu kind of sees this as a problem and he's trying to kind of give an ethical underpinning through which we can structure how we act in history, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something kind of appealing to the idea that there's sort of like a, a, a underpinning of like, I think you could even relate it back to like sort of like a concept of human nature that communism is interwoven into that, like as a positive side of human nature, uh, like sort of a part of like the species being as like a continuing process in which like man like slowly gains control over his environment and alters his nature and like builds himself up through a continuing process of like going through that feedback loop. And communism I, I is like humanity finally having control over the conditions of their own existence. Yeah, it's sort of like um, because, like under feudalism, you know, we're we're at the mercy of famines and plagues, but then capitalism happens, and we're at the mercy of financial whims and disasters. And, and the so, anarchy of the market. Yeah, the, the anarchy, anarchy of, the market. of the market. And with that, we finally realize like reason is a force within history like in hegelian sense and individual expression becomes possible yeah because i think communism is in a way kind of the ultimate success like the ultimate successor of the enlightenment project which is the idea that humanity can use reason to perfect itself and so essentially the idea of communism like just the idea of planning society around human need is kind of the full realization of this, basically. And Marx gives a, and Capital explains how in order to fulfill this, we have to move beyond the market and we have to, you know, move beyond the alienation of labor, etc. But one thing I wanted to talk about was kind of how at the beginning of the book, Badu is kind of like talking in a, in a polemic against people who say that communism is a failure by pointing to the disasters of the 20th century. I didn't really pick up whether he says it was a failure or not, 
but I kind of get the sense, like, in how I find, like, a, way, a good, good way of looking at this is kind of like how Rosa Luxemburg did. And she had a quote, she has a quote, I can't remember from what work, where she says that every failed revolt and revolution isn't really a failure because the subjective lessons that we learn from these failures prepare us for the next attempt, which can be successful potentially. And so, in a way, failures aren't completely failures because they still provide lessons that we can learn from. Yeah. yeah. More likely, though, he's pulling from Mao, uh, from defeat to defeat to the final victory. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I know, like, this is, all this is supposed to be, like, trying to get away from, like, the supposed economism of, like, of, um, of, like, the second internationalism and the crude efforts of Stalin and that sort of thing. But, like, I, I think, Sorry. I think, like, one of the major problems with, like, communism in the 20th century was, like, like, we didn't have, like, we had electricity as, like, sort of, like, a mode of production, but it didn't really develop into the means of, like, the ability to give us socially properly like I, I know this is probably going to be like a spicy take because it's basically admitting like the calculation problem was real to a certain extent like at least on the like what hayek levels is like the calculation problem in terms of like not being able to like communicate prices through like money like in terms of like planning yeah and like i i think like Tickton's work basically like shows that that was a legitimate problem in like heavily planned econ in like the Soviet Union. Like I, I don't think that's why he was like asked by the von Mises Institute, the von Mises estate. Like that's why they reached out to him because he unintentionally like proved that this thing was a legit problem in the Soviet Union. But like in terms of like developing the mode of product developing like a new like computers are basically like the new mode of production it wasn't electricity like electricity in the broadest sense was the new mode of production but specifically computers is like going is like the steam engine for a new mode of production so yeah like, i think yeah i can that's kind of what paul cockshot says actually is that the reason the soviet union couldn't have a successful planned economy is because the forces of production hadn't developed the computer technology required to plan such a complex division of labor i mean and it's a yeah, lot easier to imagine a planned economy using like you know modern technology and the internet than it would be using you know slide rules like it is yeah. kind of um there's truth to that, actually. I, I actually agree with that. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I used to be really yeah. opposed to and this even, idea and, even, and say, God damn it, no, it's because the relations of production were still alienated. And I think that's also a factor. I mean, and I think even, that, like... Even, even production, admit, even Paul Cox shot amidst that, like, so there were problems with, like, social relations in terms of, like, not eliminating money. Like, that's a critique that he levels at the Soviet Union. But, like... Yeah. Should have been time shits. <laughs> I mean, I think he's right, actually. So, I mean, I say like I say like I'm joking, but I actually agree with him. Yeah, so, like, does that make us all like second internationalist, productivist, like Marxist? Who, you know, uh, <laughs> all we're all collectively Paul Cockshot now. Even now, Paul Cockshot. 
I don't think it's it's nice to always have these would hate us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would hate him for being like a weird Stalinoid. He's he's I mean he's really hard on the dead transfer of shit. Like if you look at his um his Facebook page, like he's going hard on that. Yeah, he's obsessed with on trans people. It's really weird. Yeah. 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 Anyway, it goes back it goes back to like his weird upset with Stalinoid obsession with like the productive family that yeah. became like a thing under like Stalin Stalinist communism because when you read his writing on like socialism he does not have a concept of abolition of the family at all yeah basically like the, uh the way I understand cockshot is he thinks that like gender bending and homosexuality are like bad because it reduces the productive um growth of the human population and that's bad for the product i don't know like it's really so that's, that, no, that's about it actually yeah he thinks yeah. like it's, it's anti-social because um they're 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 basically leeching off the system by not raising children that's like catholic, adopt. it's like catholic traditionalist communism it's yeah it's really weird uh, yeah. actually, wanna, i actually want to i do want to read like this really great line though that, that badu does have he frames this like so perfectly and not in a way where it's like let me let me just I'll just read it real quick. Lumping together Stalin and Hitler was already a sign of extreme intellectual poverty. The norm by which any collective undertaking has to be judged is, it is argued, that by the number of deaths it causes. If that were really the case, the huge colonial genocides and massacres, the millions of death and deaths in the civil and world wars through which our West forged its might, should be enough to discredit, even the eyes of philosophers who extol their morality, the parliamentary regimes of Europe and America. What would be left for those who scribble about rights? How could they go on singing the praises of bourgeois democracy as the only form of relative good and making pompous predictions about totalitarianism when they are standing on top of heaps of victims? Yeah, I mean, and that pretty much sums up why, like, I can't stand bourgeois critiques of Stalinism because they're just always so hypocritical. And I really think the only people who have the right to critique Stalinism are communists because... We're critiquing it from a standpoint where which we aren't being hypocrites. We're critiquing it for not living up to our values rather than, you know, trying to claim that it's somehow this greater evil than Western capitalism and equivalent to Nazism, and you know, which was based off ethnic cleansing. I want to talk a little bit about kind of maybe the raison d'etre for reading this in the first place. Um, his thoughts on May 68. When I was reading yeah, that was uh, interesting. I was actually struck by how close his analysis was to ours, but there was a key difference in that he pinpoints, he basically argues that really the class and leadership in May 68 was the petty bourgeoisie. And the reason that like fighting the cops was so central to it was they were basically trying to uh, force like a, they're basically trying to force the police to over retaliate and kill people in order to create like a class cautious belli that could have brought out like a broader revolt against the state. That kind of reminds me of um, this. There was this idea in the early Comintern that they um, like the uh, that was kind of espoused by the left communist factions called the theory of the offensive, and it was put to test in March 1921 in Germany. And the idea was that basically the proletarian vanguard has to engage the state in minority battles in order to kind of shake the rest of the workers out of their Menshevik slumber and wake them up into a revolutionary raid. And so basically, like, the Communist Party of Germany and the um, communist, the left Communist Party attempted a push 
in Germany in March um, 1921, and it was a disaster, and it led to social democrats and communist workers like fighting each other in the streets, and you know, co-workers like beating each other up, and just it was a total disaster, and it got completely crushed. It had no popular support, but there was this kind of idea that if a minority forced, you know, kind of class could, could, could kind of force mass class conflict into action. Yeah, well, he he basically argued that like. Um, the revolutionary, non-legal overthrow of the Bonapartist form of state um, of state power. The, sorry, overthrow of the Bonapartist form of state power was an objective possibility, but that he then argues that the absence of a true uh, quote-unquote Marxist-Leninist party was what prevented the proletariat from being able to lay claim to the ideological and political leadership of the struggle, um, and that he basically he basically says the reason that the state retreated was that it. Like the, there was a threat in that it could have led to like a fall of a bourgeois fraction, and so because the specific conditions in which it retreated made its retreat spectacular. What was at stake was clear, um, and that is an essential point uh, in any trial of strength. It was the three conditions laid down by the UNEF, and this was an excellent tactical decision that received unwavering support that made the Prime Minister Pompidou capitulate. Uh, the public demonstration of the effectiveness of activist methods meant that these thesis. Um, that had for years been defended to no avail by small minorities within the workers' movements, suddenly became offensive thesis. Um, minorities like the Trotskyist groups in La Voix Ouvrière, the Maoist militants in the JCML, and who had links in the productive sector, the anarchist syndicalists in Force Ouvrière, played a decisive role in calling strikes at um, Sodeviation and Renault. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, because... One thing that I wanted to say in the last episode on May 68 was, like, it's not true that the CGT was, yeah, CGT was the only, like, union that went on strike. There were, like, when the student revolt happened, there were other strikes that happened in solidarity with the student revolts. But the thing is, these strikes happened in factories that were organized by Trotskyist groups and anarchist groups and Maoist groups already. It wasn't like apolitical workers spontaneously were like, yeah, go like radical students, you know, overthrow the state. Like they had already been politicized by, you know, Trotskyists and, you know, what other groups existed in France. Because there were a lot of different, you know, political groups involved in May 68 that were providing leadership to the movement. And he kind of, he kind of divides May 68 into four different parts. I think I'm trying to remember what they all were. I think one of them was the the you know the the actual like class struggle movement, which he sees kind of embodied by the students rather than the workers. He sees the students as kind of the class conscious vanguard, and then there's the 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 workers' general strike that's under the control of the CGT and the PCF, and this is kind of the um, economistic movement that holds back the radical movement. And then there's, and he also talks about the cultural aspect of it, which is kind of overemphasized yet un misunderstood as somehow being alien to the proletariat. Yeah, I mean, I guess he also, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of re-skimming through some of this. He basically kind of argues that it was, there was kind of like a convergence of different like ideologies of like self-management and decentralization. Like, like Proudhonism, like linked up to a certain extent with like, the Trotskyist condemnation of bureaucracies. Yeah, that's... He basically, he basically argues that, you know, like, if only they'd had, like, Mao's theory of the mass line, they could have stopped that vaccination. 
So. Yeah, that's that was pretty stupid. He, he definitely. Um, but there were Maoists there, so I don't understand. Like, what, um, yeah, I don't exactly. Like, there were Maoists there. Like, how come their mass line didn't magically make the <laughs> May '68 riots become a revolution? Like, um, so maybe we should move forward a little bit. He has. He also, you know, basically argues like the Cultural Revolution was like the last kind of part of like the second sequence of communism and it was the last kind of attempt to grapple with the contradictions of the of the party state um i'm a little less well versed on the exact history of the cultural revolution um so i wasn't able to extrapolate too much from this other than apparently uh mao's a genius and uh yeah he definitely overrates mao in this and kind of ignores the repression of radical movements that Mao took part in. Yeah, you don't understand the infinite the infinity of Mao's dialectic or yeah, whatever he, he whatever he was going on about in that one Prisero article. Oh. There, he, does yeah. make a, he does make an interesting point though about like how the personality of cult of Mao was different from Stalin and that like they it, like the iconography of it was very similar. But, like, Mao really didn't have the kind of control, like, iron grip over the party that, like, Stalin did. And he never really, like, was a, had the same kind of obsession with, like, purging and executing his rivals as Stalin did. Um, and even, like, his relation to the activity of, like, the masses, like, within the, st like, the state, the country were, you know, also, like, extremely different, particularly during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. You know. Honestly... I find it hard not to respect Mao as like a bourgeois revolutionary. Like it, it's it's hard not to respect him on some level. I, I mean, yeah, like liberating China from imperialism and feudalism was a pretty amazing act. Like, like the actual Chinese War of Liberation that you know Mao led was definitely a world historical event in the history of decolonization. It was overall progressive. You know, it was a great bourgeois because you said a bourgeois revolution but where i lose it is where like this idea of the cultural revolution as being the answer to the the problem of the party state because yeah, essentially essentially what the cultural revolution's idea was was that if you just call on the masses to drain the swamp basically <laughs> they'll eventually you know somehow people i don't i, I just somehow the bureaucracy will become, you know, good and they'll simply become, you know, administrators rather than bureaucrats and class contradictions will disappear somehow. Yeah. If because you have enough if you have enough struggle sessions of like weird college students just shouting at you, you know, we're, we're, that will get rid of the state. Yeah, because he says that the cultural revolution it represents a break away from the party state, but it, it did, did it really produce something that was superior to the party state? Because, I mean, there was the attempt to form a Paris Commune-style government, but it was quickly abandoned because Mao preferred to have the military in charge. And I think that there was potential. But the general idea that Mao seems to have is that the factory workers were kind of like under the control of their union bureaucrat capitalist rotors, and they, you know, were generally a conservative force. And the real, like, revolutionaries were the, these kind of, you know, these Red Guard groups of youth and students running around and, you know, fighting each other over politics. And, I mean, it is really 
I think the reason the cultural revolution is so interesting is because you have a state where there's a lot of censorship and not a lot of open political discussion. And then all of a sudden, open political discussion is allowed, but it's still within this, you know, Maoist discourse, and it kind of can't escape this Maoist discourse. And I think that is kind of, I think that might be, you know, one of the problems of, you know, the Cultural Revolution was that it was still ultimately, like, it, it, it wasn't so much a movement against the party state as a way of trying to purify the party state. And mm. to the extent that it moved away from the party state and made, like, a politics away from the party state that was actually superior, like the commune form, it was suppressed. Yeah. And so that's where I, I don't I don't really buy Badu's whole interpretation of the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's something there in terms of like modern Chinese, the modern Chinese bureaucrats and the Dengus, like sort of. I, I don't want to ca- call it a counter revolution because it implies that the Cultural Revolution was something genuine, but like. Like they genuinely fear it, they they fear it to this day. Like they they do everything in their power to make sure that everyone knows that the Cultural Revolution. I was that was a mistake. Mao was a Mao was an amazing figure as the founder of the nation, but the Cultural Revolution greatly for those are mistakes. Don't look into them. <coughs> yeah, and that, that sort of that, thing. That was a lost like weekend. It's a lost. It's a lost talk about it now okay what happened then stays there we all did some crazy things well what's yeah. interesting is that a lot of trotskyists were really down with the great cultural revolution because you know trotsky's whole theory was that you had to deform the worker state you know because it was a worker state because you had nationalized property relations which meant that therefore the proletariat had to be in power i don't know how but and <laughs> And then you just had like a parasitic bureaucracy that ruled over the nationalized property relations. And so what wasn't needed wasn't a social revolution, but a political revolution to purge the bureaucracy. And so a lot of Trotskyists, I can't remember which groups, but they were basically saying, this is, you know, the great political revolution of the proletariat to overthrow the Stalin. Was it the Marcyites? Um, be the Marcyites. Maybe the, I think it was, um, I don't, I'm not sure, to be honest. Like that seems well, it like it wasn't something. the Sparts because I actually went back and looked at what the Sparts were saying about the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, I think the Sparts uh, didn't like support any kind of like revolts in, in like, like did they support the Workers' Revolution of like uh, 50, 56? I Hungarian think uh, Revolution? they didn't exist at the time. They were still in the SWP. Oh right, the right. SWP did like support the Hungarian Revolution. But wasn't there something that they wrote in like in like retrospective where they denounced it or something like that? Uh, probably. I'm sure, there was something like that. I don't know. It's yeah. I I don't want to end up just having a long conversation about the Sparks line on whatever. But uh... well, anyway, I will, I will say this. I will say this. I mean, but do. I mean, he's right in a broad sense is that the Cultural Revolution did kind of represent like a period where, you know, people were co- coming to grapple with the limitations of the party state. And that's kind of that convergence that he recognized earlier in May 68 between like Trots, anarchists and Maoists. Like they all recognized that like the Soviet party state. Like, yeah, they not... all had a critique of the Soviet bureaucracy and that's what united them all against the bureaucratic capitalist state. 
Where he's wrong, though, is to say, like, um, the Great Leap Forward, like, or not the Great Leap, sorry, the uh, Cultural Revolution, like, represented some kind of step that we can really meaningfully build off of when it was kind of clearly, like, a, I don't know if it was really any more, any more of a victory than any of the other sort of revolts against. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. And it's just the human cost of it was pretty bad. Like a lot of workers were murdered on mass by the PLA. I mean, like, a lot of people were struggle sessioned into suicide and people were just killed over petty political differences. Probably. I mean, the numbers are kind of, ex- I'm, I'm not going to are exaggerated. Yes. You're completely, yeah, they're hyper exaggerated by the Chinese state that wants to like, you know, suppress that sort of thing. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, it was still pretty bad. It was like, it just, it was as bad as you could get from like college, from getting like students going nuts, which is like, you can still get like mob, really bad mob violence and things like that from that. So, yeah. yeah. But the thing is that the workers, the, 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 when the workers tried to enter the, arena and the cultural revolution they were basically just denounced as economists because basically you know they were fighting for like you know economic demands and that was seen as like wrong because that's you know the productive forces that's focusing on the productive forces in the economy and not the political which is you know the relations of production and whatever we need to put politics in the command and it basically seems to suggest that basically China could have had full communism, full stateless communism, given the development of its productive forces, if the Cultural Revolution had succeeded. Yeah, that's that's dumb on like multiple levels, like social, like communism in like one country. Yeah, thing. It's just just like a number of different things that you can point out. I will say this though, uh, reading this did make me want to read Mao a little more. So. I mean, it's yeah. worth reading him just to know what he has to say. Yeah. I like, want to read on contradiction. Maybe we can do that at some point for the show. Could be yeah, interesting. I've read it, but I'd be down too. Um, there's also the last section of the book, um, not the last section, but the only section we haven't covered is this thing on the Paris Commune. And this is probably the section that actually gets kind of the most abstract because it gets kind of into his... Um, Starts so talking about sites of events and... Yeah, this really gets into, like, his ontology. So he doesn't really go... But he, he, he doesn't go too super deep into his ontology, but it's... Like, this is where his, like, a- idealistic analysis kind of falters a little bit, because, you know, I prefer kind of like a materialist analysis of how the commune... Ha- or a social analysis of how the commune happened. And he's basically arguing it's like this, this like, uh, thing that essentially, like, emerged out of nothing. And how does that happen, right? But yeah, it's like, did it, did it emerge it. out of nothing, Elaine? Did it? No, it emerged. There were tons of workers' clubs and Republican organizations and secret organizations and workers, like, you know, groups and all kinds of different, you know, clubs and political, like, because, you know, the Jacobins were basically like, a, before you had like political parties, you kind of had like political clubs like the Jacobins. And so right. it didn't come out of nothing. And that's really just, you know, that's, silly to suggest yeah i mean it's i mean obviously an incident like the commune or these kind of like moments in history do kind of take on a life of their own and add up to something even like beyond the sum of their parts 
right? I think that's what he's kind of trying to explain, how the economy in which only lasted for a couple of months was this thing that, you know, would sort of fix itself into kind of the very fabric of like French politics or even, you know, global communist world, yeah, yeah, world politics. Well, I, I mean, global, I mean yeah. uh, the U.S. bourgeoisie during Reconstruction was this afraid that there was going to be a Paris commune in the South. And so that's one of the reasons why Reconstruction was ended. Like you can actually read the bourgeois press at the time, and they're talking about, like, you know, the dangers of the labor movement and what would happen if, you know, they tried to make a commune here in the United States. Like, it casts a shadow of fear across the bourgeoisie, but it also kind of cast this model of... It, it showed the possibility of workers taking control of society, basically. And it showed, yeah. and, and Marx recognized this, even though he thought that the revolt was basically extremely flawed, it was too soon. He basically um, sees the Paris Commune as the proletariat developing its forms of organizations and its process of struggle in a way. Let's yeah, see. I mean... It so, yeah, work. in that sense, it is something more than the sum of its parts because it will always be referenced by communists in the future as kind of like a standpoint of what the proletariat being in power looks like. Right. Yeah, it would define, like, what is the dictatorship of the proletariat. No. Yeah, because Engel straight up says, you know, these Philistines, you know, they're all afraid of the dictatorship of the proletariat, but... What was, you know, the Paris Commune? That was a dictatorship of the proletariat. But Marx actually did say that they should have repressed counter-revolution harder. Right. I mean, could they have, though, is kind of the question. Well, they actually were on their way towards doing that. Towards the end of the Commune, they did establish a committee of public safety. And a lot of anarchists were like, oh, well, the Commune was actually, like, starting to go bad once because they, they developed the committee of public safety. But it was on the end too late because, you know, we all know what happens. You know, the yeah. army comes in and everyone gets massacred. But yeah, they got a lot of the peasantry to come in. Like, yeah, got, like peasant volunteers to come in. And also, um, what I think what's funny is how Badu mentions that basically like all the intellectual artist types like hated the commune except for like Rimbaud and um, Victor <laughs> Hugo. And Victor Hugo, yeah, which I thought it was just awesome thinking of, you know, a young Rimbaud, like, as a partisan of the commune. Well, and, like, Victor Hugo, just given all the stuff he wrote, I mean, kind of had to, like, go along, because, you know, it's like, you can't, you can't write, you can't write Le Miserable and then just be like, oh, fuck this when it happens, you know what I mean, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, do we have any parting thoughts on this, uh, the communist hypothesis on, on Badu in general? Uh, I was thinking that I think there's a lot of potential here, but it's really held back by Maoism. And I think the potential here is kind of developing a communist ethic to where, because I remember someone one time said that you can learn a lot from historical materialism, but you can't learn the right way to live your life. Yeah. And in a way, like, maybe communists do need some general principles about the right way to live their life, especially when you have things like rape scandals happening in organizations and all kinds of just horrible ways that people treat each other in the left that we see today. And we see the atrocities of the past. 
And so maybe there is this need for a communist ethic, but I don't think that we can glean much from Maoism as a historical experience for that because, I mean, let's look at the Shining Path, which is considered, you know, the height of Maoism by modern day Maoists. They had just an intense, intense, sickening glorification of violence for its own sake of violence as almost like a cleansing act, essentially. Like they would train like young children to kill chickens when they were seven years old to prepare them to kill humans. Yeah. You know, it's they, just they were think massive butchers. Yeah, exactly. Butchers. And you know, I don't think Maoism is going to be the place to find like a kind of communist yeah. ethic. If, I, if mean, that's, I mean I that's mean, why Badu's post Maoist. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's something important here in terms of like having faith in communism as a larger idea than like like the thing that has like i believe that limits like a a lot of modern day communists is that they're ultimately like too discouraged by like the yes by like the 20th century in order to like really have like the faith necessary in communism and like the secular society like bourgeois society kind of like discourages any faith. kind of faith in any yeah. literally anything like well, that's why well, you know, but, but i mean but do like, would, descri- would describe it as like fidelity to a truth event yeah that's yeah but let's just call it faith for now because that's more simple because <laughs> what i was thinking is there was a meme going around left book and i know it's stupid to talk about left book on here but it was like oh the leftists are wanna believes like, you know, they, they they can't, like, deal with reality that, like, communism is dead and the workers don't give a shit and they're just a bunch of wanna-believe losers and so we're just going to, like, make jokes about them online while still calling ourselves communists and looking down on them. And, you know, communist and, and the thing is, communism is a rationalist, materialist, scientific, or it's supposed to be. But the thing is that even in sciences there isn't a complete, there isn't like, we don't have complete, we don't have a completely systematic understanding of evolution that has no holes in it whatsoever. Right. And so maybe you could even argue that believing in evolution does kind of require like a leap of faith. Like, and so this kind of made me think of Pascal's wager, you know, the whole idea that, you know, let's say that, you know, there's, I mean, I'm not, I don't agree with Pascal's wager, but there's kind of the concept that let's say, you know, there's a a tiniest chance that God exists. And then there's, you know, the possibility. And then, you know, there's no matter how high the the possibility that God doesn't exist, you're better off wagering that, you know, God does exist just in case God does exist. And obviously then there's a question, well, what if there's more than one God? And, you know, how do we know it's, you know, but if you think about it, in politics, you always are basically making a wager. Like, for example, when Lenin, you know, and, you know, the leading Bolsheviks under his leadership decided to, you know, seize power and lead the seizure of power in October, Lenin was making a wager. Like, he was basically kind of making a leap of faith that the revolution would, you know, move through Europe and the rest of the world. And he was making that leap of faith and that wager based on rational analysis of what was going on but ultimately he still had to kind of make a wager that things would go a certain way and so i think with communists 
there's, you know, we kind of have a similar wager that we have to make just to generally uh, in our ideology, because let's say that there's only a 1% chance that like an emancipated human society is true and it is, is possible and that, you know, and it's just not, and in all likelihood, it's never possible. And humans are always going to be miserable and oppress each other and enslave each other. But in the end, it makes more sense to, you know, wager, make the wager that, yes, it actually is possible that something better than this shit is, is, you know, in existence, that something better than this can exist, basically. Like, it, it makes sense to, given the, pos- given the fact that humans are exploited and oppressed, it makes sense to kind of make the wager that it's possible that they can't be. If that, well, that makes sense. Is, yeah. that, is that is that like an insane rant, or does that make sense? No, no, I know. I I mean, I think I basically agree with that for the most part. Um, I would say, like, what I like about Badu is what I dislike about him at the same time. Um, I think he is overly idealistic in the terms of the way he frames things, but that makes his analysis more interesting because it goes against a lot of, you know, maybe more meat and potatoes, like materialist Marxist analysis. I like that he also like approaches things from like a different pers- angle, you know, like he has sort of a background in like semiotics and like different aspects of theory that he sort of brings to the table. But what really gives me like some affection for him and why I still read him is sort of his like, what he would probably describe as like the fidelity to the truth event of communism. You know, when all the other frogs kind of jump ship, like he basically, he stayed true and never really gave up on the idea of like universal emancipation. Yeah. And in the end, I think his work comes out as, as better than a lot of his peers for it. Yeah, um, because uh, like he, his columns are often just really, you know, good. And so it's, it's almost like, you know, kind of faith affirming in a way. Like, you yeah, know, he tends, like he tends to have very good takes, even if he's very, like, he's very against the anti-immigrant sentiment and the right. French that has also infected part of the left and is very insistent that it's a class line that we can't cross and that people who cross that class line don't fly the red flag. They fly the tricolor flag and we only fly the red flag. That's kind of the metaphor he uses. Like there's those in, those in France who fly the tricolor and those in France who fly the red flag and we fly the red flag. And if we fly the red flag, we have to maintain a real fidelity to the ideal of human emancipation. Yeah. And that's why his takes are so much better than, like, say, Zizek's. Yeah, Yeah, or, or, yeah, or even, like, a lot of, like, you know, I mean, his takes are tended to other stuff. Like, I remember, like, the Charlie Hebdo thing I think you mentioned earlier. Like, he was, like, 100% on the money with that. And, like, when so few people were, you know? Yeah, like, he didn't, like, apologize at all for the murders or minimize how bad it was. But at the same time, he didn't apologize at all for French nationalism and how, you know, the French bourgeoisie was using it as a way to promote national unity and shit. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, that, that, I mean, one thing, the only thing that does kind of also kind of annoy me about Badu is like his literary pretensions. Oh, like, yeah. When he fucking quotes his own weird plays, that that was stupid. Like, I really I really hope the dialogue of that play sounds better in French. Uh, actually, maybe I can just read some of this real quick. Um, okay, here we go. Let's torture um, our audience. Yeah, here we go. Uh, let's see. I think this takes place, I think, in like um, where there's like a strike or something that's leading to like a revolution. Camille. This is the end. I will lie down in the ashes of states. I will go away with the old texts. Farewell. I am leaving. Giving up. Camille. What? Cephas? You can't leave things up 
in the air. You're not going to leave our you're not going to leave our undertaking leaderless in the midst of disaster and necessity, David, without any explanation, without any critique. Turning your back when we need to, when we should be picking up stones. Camille, I joined with you in the jurisdiction of command in order to do certain things, and we have done them. We we hastened the decline of this country, which we took back to its terroristic origins. The only thing that lies beyond victory is defeat. No, no, not the sudden defeat and overthrow, the slow and irreversible defeat of that which has to come to terms with what exists. Not the useless defeat that is covered in glory, not the legendary catastrophe. It goes on like this. It's um, like communist Rorschach. It's like communist, like like it was written by like communist Rorschach, just the way the sentence like sort of just abruptly end. Like there's <laughs> one fragment. Here's, here's another section. Um, David, what exactly are you asking for? Paula, I've told you. I'm asking you to give up power. David, but why do you insist on using your maternal function for counter-revolutionary purposes? Paula, you are the counter-revolution. You exhaust all trace of the will to justice. Your politics are so vulgar. David, and you are so distinguished. <laughs> there was a Bertolt yeah. Brecht quote in there that was pretty decent. Where was that? Uh, I think it was in the. I can't. Remember. I think it was in the part on the commune. Quoting your own play is kind of lame. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, and I mean, I almost kind of wanted to like. I feel like maybe I came off too idealistic with my whole idea of communism as like a secularized Pascal's wager. But too bad it's going in the show. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I I don't. I think that it's 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 an idea that needs to be rationalized with historical materialism. And understood that you know it's the material development of society that makes this possible for having emancipated society, and it's not just this idea that we voluntaristically cling to, regardless of material conditions, and that this emancipation is premised on overcoming necessity. I do. I mean, the, one of the one of the so more that's political economy is really important, and you can't just have socialism without productive forces. Yeah. One, one of the more brilliant things about this really is like the title, because communism really is a hypothesis. You know, it remains to be proven in history, though. Yeah, isn't there a quote by Badu where someone like asks him, "So you you have this communist hypothesis, but so many people, how many times has this hypothesis been tried and failed so miserable?" And he's like. So wait, you're like you're gonna say that a hypothesis is debunked if it's tried like a, a few times? Like you're, you're you're just gonna give up? Like you, is, would any scientific theory ever been proven if its hypothesis was just abandoned after a couple attempts that failed? You know, right? <laughs> that's why falsification theory and like just that sort popper uh, popperian um, falsification theory just doesn't work when it's like applied to actual sciences because. Like yeah, a lot of science, there, there's it's things a trial that you, and error you process. It's a trial and error process, and there's a lot of things that you can't you can't falsify in like actual, like much of theoretical physics is like unfalsifiable. Like you just can't, like it's too expansive and too experimental to just falsify. Yeah, like it goes almost into the realm of metaphysics, but. Well, that's why that's why you always see like these exciting articles where they're like, "Look, we we observed this thing in space that proves Einstein was right." You know, like they're still they're still finding things. Yeah, know? exactly. Like the theory of relativity is still being proven. It's it's a hypothesis, and we 
test the hypothesis and then we repeat the experiment based on the results of the past experiment. I mean, that kind of sounds too cold and mechanical because in the 20th century, like the human lives are at cost. But at the same time, you know, human lives are being destroyed by capitalism. Well, so so that, makes it, that makes it okay to the well, gulags. With you. Okay, I, mean, I, I, I believe well, that's like, where the ethics aspect comes in. I, I, I think there's like a fundamental faith in like human and like human reason that you have to have in order to be like a communist because it like what we're arguing for and pushing for is a planned economy on a global scale and that requires like a, a faith in like human reason as a force within history that like would be tapped back into from like Hegel like I think Marcuse in like reason and re revolution like explains that the best ultimately but like, so it's like we have faith there's in something there, rather than God. Yeah, like basically what capitalism has done has like initially it first it like sort of like destroyed the ability for people to like believe in God. And then it destroyed like even the secular like ideologies of like Marxism and like Freudian analysis and things like that until it impossible to we're believe left anything. with this. Yeah, until we're left with this sort of like postmodern void, or not even postmodern. It's like beyond that at this point. Like, like the mass majority of people are just alienated from like thinking about like ideology and like broad concepts beyond yeah. themselves. And, and a lot of it also comes from just like looking at the masses and being like, oh, they are so uncultured. Like, they're never going to make a revolution. Yeah, I mean, even even those who participate in religion, they don't. You have a feeling that they don't genuinely believe in God, and are looking there for only a sense of community that has been ripped from them by like capitalism and things like that. Um, to wrap things up, there is actually a speech by Bordiga from like the 1950s, where he says, "What we need now more than anything else is faith." Which I thought was funny, just coming from Bordigo, who is, you know, kind of known as like a hardcore mechanical materialist. And he's like, what we need more than ever is faith. I mean, and so, you know, I don't think it's wrong to have faith in communism as long as you have, you know, a good grasp of historical materialism to back it up. I mean, that's not surprising from Bordiga, considering like that weird, like, article on like the Aztecs. Or was it, it wasn't the Aztecs, it was like some some like native mexican people that like were essentially like worship death and like communism would be like that only we would overcome like the christian fear of death it is <laughs> someone, someone someone went on an ayahuasca trip right. yeah that's why people think bordigo was doing acid in his older days <laughs> yeah sounds like it i'm from, gonna some, from badu to bordigo <laughs> That's it for this week. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or straight up give us some money. You can send us money at the Cash App, dollar sign CL Tampa, or through PayPal. Uh, just send it to Communist League of Tampa at gmail.com. 
So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>